Hallelujah. Uh, okay, if you are a child in fifth grade or under, you may head out those doors to our Vine Kids program. If you're a mid-school kid, you can go out those back doors, and there's, there'll be a Bible study out there for you that will be thoroughly enjoyable for all involved. Hey, everybody. How are you guys doing? Keep allergies staying down. Everybody making it okay? Um, so, we're going to be continuing our jump through the book of John today. Treb, as he announced uh, last week, he got a chance to go on a trip to the Holy Land, so he's been sending me pictures of the Sea of Galilee, and he like, went to Nazareth and walked around where Jesus grew up. And So he is having a super wonderful time and uh, is challenging my capacity to envy him. So, um, but he's doing great, and he'll come back this week, Lord willing. Uh, he said he's going to try to barter some a peace fruity over there while he's there, so maybe he can <clears throat> fix that whole deal. We're going to continue in the book of John, and we'll be in chapter 12, starting in verse 20. So in the, kind of in the immediate context of where we are, Jesus' public ministry has now kind of come to an, an, an public meeting. He's not going to really go out like he was before and travel around. Things have now zeroed into Jerusalem, and this is the Passover week. And this is going to be the final week of Jesus' life before the crucifixion. So in chapter 11, we looked at Lazarus' death and Jesus raising him from the dead and all that went around that incredible miracle. We looked at Jesus has come and, and uh, Mary has anointed his feet for his, his burial. She's anointed him for burial. And we looked at the, the incredible service that that is. He's had that triumphal entry where he has entered as the, the king of the Jews, really, into the city of Jerusalem. And then we have this, really, these, these two sections in the last part of chapter 12 before we get to the Last Supper and all the, the, the Passover meal and all the things that are involved in chapters 13 through, through 17. So if you'll turn with me to chapter 12. Let's pray, and then we're just going to jump on into it. We'll be in 12 through 36 today. Now, oh, Lord Jesus, I, uh, I love that in the Bible, when we get glimpses of your throne, that these incredible beings that we don't even have context for are, are singing to you. And I just love when we get to sing. What a wonderful thing when the church sings to their God. And I thank you for giving us voices and for giving us music and that you have given us such a variety of ways to worship you. Thank you for being so good to us. I just pray for us today, Lord. I, um, it's so hard reading the news. I mean, Lord, someone got shot not far from <laughs> where we live today, and it's just we live in a world that is broken, a world that is violent, a world that is sad and just needs a redeemer. I pray today that you would change how we think about what it means to be followers of the Redeemer, what it means to walk in the light. Right now, I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to trust you, help us to trust your word, to trust that what your word says is true. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us and teach us what we need to know today. I pray for each heart and mind and soul in here that they would be good soil for your word today. 
I pray for me that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Teach us, challenge us, correct us, and help us to walk with you, Lord. We pray all these things just expecting your wondrous work. In your risen name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so, verse 20. It says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered, and others said an angel had spoken to him. And Jesus said, This voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven or cast out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? And then Jesus told them, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. Before darkness overtakes you, the man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So this is right after the triumphal entry, right? Where the Jews sort of had their expectations of of what the Messiah was going to be, and they're expecting a conquering king to come in and rescue them from the Romans. And Jesus, of course, had this entirely higher goal, which is to rescue men from their sin. And it says that there were some uh, Greeks among them who went up to worship at the feast. So Greeks could be, or oftentimes, uh, sometimes that word is translated Gentiles in the New Testament, like to the, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile in Romans and then, but it just means the Greeks. And it says there were some Greeks among those who were, went up to worship at the feast. It doesn't say that they were proselytes, which would be someone who was a Greek who had converted, like we see in Acts, the God-fearing Greeks uh, who had converted to Judaism. I, I guess they're just Greeks and they're up in Jerusalem at the time of the feast. Maybe they were selling things. I don't know why they're there. But they came up to Philip. Why they came up to Philip, I'm not sure. They come up to Philip, who's from Bethsaida, and they say, Sir, it's a very polite question. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And so Philip goes to talk to Andrew, because someone come, you know, they're in this group, and these guys come up, and these Greeks come up and say, hey, can we talk to Jesus? And Philip's like, well, I'm going to go talk to him. So he goes over to talk to his buddy Andrew, and he goes, hey, Andrew, these guys said that they want to talk to Jesus. And so Andrew and Philip very smartly say, well, let's tell Jesus. So it says, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. 
so it's smart, right? Good, just as a quick aside, whenever someone asks to see Jesus, just take them to Jesus. It's not that complicated. So that's what they do. And then Jesus' reply is kind of in that context. So these Greeks right here, we're not going to see them again the whole rest of the book, right? So they don't really pop up again. It's not like they're, and commentators and things aren't entirely sure why John puts this in here. But Jesus' response is in that context where these people come up who are not Jews, and they come up and they say, ask the disciples, hey, we want to see Jesus. And so, of course, Jesus answers in a way that seems to make no sense whatsoever on the surface, right? So it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So Son of Man is the title that Jesus gives himself. It's come out of uh, Daniel chapter 7. The hour has come. So it doesn't mean the literal hour is in like, oh, it's one o'clock, time for, no, he means the, the, the time frame has finally come. If you remember earlier on in John, he says over and over again, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet come. Well, this whole book, we've kind of been waiting for that hour to come for Jesus to do what he came to do, which is to die on the cross for the sins of mankind. And that time has now arrived. So the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's talking about his death. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. I mean, the things that Jesus says, you know, someone just says, hey, I want to see Jesus. And all of a sudden he's talking about wheat and seeds. And what is he talking about? Well, Jesus is going to die. And he's going to be buried. And if you want to go into 1 Corinthians 15 for some homework this week, uh, Paul really gets into the reality of the resurrection, that Jesus is the first fruits among many brethren and what that looks like, that Jesus is this picture of resurrected life, right? He is the first resurrected human, and we are, he is the model of what we're going to be in our resurrection. But he says, listen, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground, it, it can't make any more wheat. Anybody who's ever planted anything at all, and this is an agrarian society, he's using this illustration to help them understand something has to happen. Something has to die in order to produce more fruit. Then he says, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So the word hate there means hate. <laughs> it's not a super complicated translation, apparently. Uh, like when Jesus says uh, that, the world, uh, that the world hates, the darkness hates the light, when he's praying for the disciples, as we'll see later on uh, at the Last Supper, and he says, Lord, the, the world uh, will hate my disciples because of me. It just means to hate. The man who hates, excuse me, loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So when you're trying to understand what the Bible says, you always want to understand it in the context of where it's at. So in the context of a, of a uh, you want to understand what the words mean and the, what the words mean in a phrase, what the phrase means in a sentence, what the sentence means in a paragraph, what the paragraph means in a chapter, what the chapter means in light of the whole book, what the whole book means in light of the whole Bible, right? So Jesus is not saying you have to hate your life to be saved. It's not what he's saying. I mean, it's not also like, oh, I hate my life. Not that kind of hate your life. It's not just complaining. He's making a contrast. The man who loves his life will lose it. How? Well, everybody dies, except for apparently two guys in the Old Testament. And everybody, if you love your life, love yourself, you can love it with all your heart and you're, you're still going to die. And so even if you do 
and involve everything in your life into loving your own life, you're, you're still going to lose it. But in contrast, the man who is willing to lay aside his own life, well, he will have that life that he really wants, which is an eternal life. Because he says, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Okay, so walk through me again from 23, right? He says, the hour has come for me to be glorified. When we think about glory, we don't think about being nailed to a cross, but that's what he's talking about. The time for me to be glorified has come. Now, something has to die to produce more fruit. And so Jesus is going to represent someone dying, surrendering themselves, just like a wheat seed, a wheat kernel is surrendered into the ground to produce more crop. And then he says, listen, don't love your life so much. It's better for you to hate your life in this world in light of the real life, which is an eternal life. And then he says, whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And look at this, my father will honor the one who serves me. Jesus says really, really hard things. Uh, the whole idea that Jesus' existence is so that we can have um, an easier life, it just isn't true. You can't just read this and say, oh, well, Jesus just wants me to be happy. He's not super concerned about that, actually. He says really hard things that I don't really like to read and I much less like to apply to my life. Okay, let's keep going here. Jesus, talking about his death, says in verse 27, now my heart is troubled. The word there for heart is psyche. It means really the, the core of his, his being is his immaterial self is troubled. In, in Spanish, that word is uh, turbado, which means like a uh, thing like turbid, uh, troubled, like a shaken up, something that's all stirred up. So Jesus' soul or his heart is now tossed around. Why? Well, uh, he's going to, this is earlier in the week, and he's not going to be alive at the end of the week. Okay, he's going to be, allow himself to be tortured. He's going to die for the sins of mankind, and he knows that. Now my heart is troubled. You may say greatly distressed. And what am I going to say? Father, save me from this hour? Uh, I, I think that's a rhetorical question. Whether it is or not doesn't really matter because it certainly foreshadows what Jesus is going to do in the Garden of Gethsemane, as we'll see. And as you look at the other synoptic gospels where Jesus comes before the Lord and just, he just comes before his Father and he's just dealing with the weight of his own humanity and his own death and his own suffering. Okay, so Jesus' heart is troubled and he says, well, what am I going to say? Father, send me from this hour? No. For this very reason that I came to this hour. And what does he say? Father, glorify your name. That when faced with this soul-stirring, troubling reality, Jesus just cries out, Father, glorify your name. And then check this out. What happens? It says, a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So this only happens three times in the Gospels, right? It happens at his baptism, where he says, this is my son in whom I'm, I'm well pleased. It happens at the transfiguration, where he says a very similar thing, except for he tells him to do what he says. And then this one comes up, and it doesn't mention sonship at all. He just, Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice booms from heaven, 
and says, I have glorified it. How? If you remember back at the beginning of John, John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Father is glorified in the incarnation of the Son. So when He says, I've glorified it, Jesus' incarnation glorified the Son, gave the Father glory. And he says, I will glorify it again because Jesus will not stay dead in the grave. He will be resurrected from the grave and he will ascend into heaven and every knee shall bow at his name. It's pretty cool though. You know, I've always kind of joked and say, I'm gonna have to hear an audible voice from heaven to do that. Well, Jesus got one. So, uh, and it says the crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. So they didn't really hear what he said. I'm assuming Jesus later told John because all the disciples were probably like, hey, Jesus, uh, what was that? And Jesus goes, well, it was my father saying, saying this. So he writes that down for us, but the crowd apparently didn't understand what he was saying. And then Jesus goes and says, listen, this voice wasn't, was for your benefit, not mine. Jesus didn't need to hear that voice, but it happened so that they would understand that when Jesus cries out to his father, that his father answers. Then he says, now is the time for judgment. So it's, it's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then it's time for judgment on this world. Why? Well, the Father was going to justly judge the world for what they're going to do to his Son. If you ever want to know why humanity needs saving, just as you read through the Gospels, just look at how they treat Jesus when he's dying. Look at how they treat him. Look at how the soldiers treat him. Look at how the Jews treat him. Look at how the rulers treat him and the, and the Sadducees and the, and the Roman governor. All, all, Jesus never even, all he did was come to save. He loved broken people. He pushed all their rules out of the way and he came and he showed us what God looks like and they killed him for it. That will bring judgment on the world. Three things are happening here in, in verse 30. Now is the time for judgment on the world. Now the prince of this world will be driven or cast out. And uh, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. So these are things that are going to be accomplished at the crucifixion of Jesus. They're not things that are going to be happening later on, right? So, because he says now is the time for judgment. So obviously there's a judgment that's going to come. If you read more in, your, in, the, in the Bible, and Jesus will talk more about this uh, further on in the chapter. But there's a judgment that will come later where Jesus will return to judge, but the Father will pass judgment on the world at the cross. The prince of this world, who is the devil or Satan, he says he will be driven or cast out. So you have this idea that at the cross, the very thing which the devil's job is, which is an accuser, that the weight of all his accusations gets removed at the cross. He can accuse all he wants, and he can the things that he accuses me of are true. I have a short temper or... There's a long list, and they're all true. But his accusations have no power because Jesus took all of our sin and he bore it on the cross and he forgave us so that the power that the devil wields over humanity is broken forever at the cross. Now, is he still active? Yes. And if you read through the end of the book, meaning Revelation, you see that the devil eventually will be finally cast out and will no longer be able to interact with humanity. But his power is gone, which is why 
the same guy who wrote this book can write another book later on that says, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Meaning that Jesus is greater than the devil because his power is broken at the cross. But in verse 32, when I am lifted up, that's a phrase meaning crucified, I will draw all men to myself. And he said he showed this, or he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So when he says draw all men to myself, he, he can't be saying that all men will be saved. The word for men, all people, really should probably just say, I will draw all to myself. And I think that the best way to understand that is, is a matter of distinction. There will be no distinction for who is, can, can be saved. That Jesus will open up salvation to the world, to the Jew first and also to the not Jew, which is everybody. He's not saying that all people will be saved here. And you read this because we keep reading just at the end of this passage here. He's telling them to believe, which if they all just were going to be saved anyway, they wouldn't have to do that. But how does his being lifted up draw men to himself? Well, just the basic reality of that's how people are saved. They're saved because they go to Jesus. That's how. When you point someone who's lost, you, you point her to the cross. Not because the cross makes them feel bad or the cross, but you point them there because that's where we understand sin and salvation and forgiveness. And so as he's being lifted up, all men can now come to him. So then the crowd speaks up. And they say, well, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? So in my references, I've got a reference to Psalm 110, which is about uh, Jesus being a, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Read Psalm 110, then go study the book of Hebrews. It's a big, big topic. But he'll be a priest forever. Isaiah chapter 9 is talking about him reigning as the, on the throne of David, so he'll be a king forever. Uh, Ezekiel 37 talks about, uh, it's right after this valley of dry bones, and then Jesus will be this shepherd that will forever shepherd his people, so he'll be a shepherd forever. And then Daniel chapter 7 is, is where Jesus as the Son of Man is before the Ancient of Days and people of every tongue and, 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 and language and people group will worship him forever and ever. So when they say, well, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever, the Messiah, that's because they've read the Old Testament. And they know that all these things were said about the Messiah. And they're like, well, what do you mean you're going to be lifted up? Lifted up meaning crucified. They know what it means. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? The Bible says he's supposed to live forever. Well, they don't know the whole story, do they? They're missing a section. They're missing the whole cross part. And it became a stumbling block to the Jews. And they asked this amazing question. Who is this son of man? And he's standing right there. It's amazing. And you expect Jesus to say, it's me. I'm the son of man. But he doesn't. What does he say? You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. So believe or put your trust in the light while you have the light so that you may become sons of light. And when he had finished speaking, he left them and then he hid himself from them. Isn't that amazing? He tells them, listen, he's talking about the reality that he's not going to be there very long. He's going to die. He's going to raise from the dead. And then he's going to ascend into heaven. And then we're, we're still waiting for him to come back. While you have the light, 
walk in it before darkness overtakes you. He knows what's coming, Jesus says. He knows that judgment is coming for all these people that are talking to him. And he's calling them to believe. Believe in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. It's the exact thing that John says earlier in the book that by believing we earn the, the, the right to be called sons of God. And then he hides himself from them, which is kind of a terrifying thing if you think about it. He's intentionally saying, believe, and then he's going to go and he's going to hide himself. And he's going to come back at the end of, uh, we'll read more in the end of this chapter, and then the next time we're going to see it is 13. It's the, basically the night of his arrest and then his crucifixion. So what do we do with all this? Um, like I said, Jesus says really hard things. And so trying to figure out what he means and then trying to figure out what we're supposed to do with it is, is hard. But a couple things popped out that I think are clear. And the first one is, look at what Andrew and Philip do. Bring people to Jesus. They don't, when people, I've never had anybody come up to me in my whole life and say, hey, are you a Christian? I want to know Jesus. I'm like, oh yeah, and we sat down. And I said, let's read the book of John. We sat down and opened up the Bible at a gas station and they got saved. That never happened. Um, I, I would love for that to happen. That would be, and that would be a banner day, right? But it's never had, once has it happened. The idea is that you go out and bring people to Jesus, right? You're fishers of men. They're in the water. We're in the boats. Jesus in the boat. Throw the net in. Pull them out. Here's Jesus, right? So we're supposed to go out into the world and bring people to Jesus. What does that look like? Well, I mean, go where unbelievers are. Find one and be their friend. It's just not overly complicated. And talk to them. Be their friend, not for the purpose of getting them to go to church or the purpose of winning their soul or whatever. Just be their friend because they're a human and humans need friends. And Jesus was friends with sinners. Sinners loved Jesus. Isn't that funny? They just flocked to Jesus. Find someone who doesn't know Jesus and then pray really hard. Oh, this is so convicting. Pray for your neighbors that don't know Jesus. Pray for them that Jesus would save them, that he would use you to do it and then be faithful in what he tells you to do. But the reality is that no one has ever been saved because they've agreed with a Christian, all right? No one. People are saved because they believe on Jesus. People are saved because they agree with who Jesus says he is, not because they agree with who I say. So that releases us from the struggle of having to argue people into heaven. It doesn't work anyway, but it's not about whether or not they agree with me. So you can just take all of the, our own feelings that get hurt and our fears of, well, what if they disagree with me and just let that go. Bring them to the Bible. Say, hey, you want to read the book of John with me? It's not scary. It's in English. Uh, we'll read it together. And we can kind of figure out who Jesus is. Do you know who he is? Who is this guy? That's what the Greeks said. Or that's what the Jews said. Who is this son of man? And the Greeks were like, hey, we want to see Jesus. People are desperate for Jesus. Bring them to him. I'm not saying don't bring them to church and don't bring them, but just bring them to Jesus. If that means you bring them into your house first, bring them into your house. If that means you bring them to coffee, bring them. I don't care how you're doing it. Just bring them to him. So the next thing is that Jesus says really hard things. Again, a man who loves his life will lose it, while a man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. 
we as the church have got to practice denying ourself. And uh, if you look up the definition of the word self, it's all over the place. I mean, we can't even figure out who we are enough to put it in a dictionary. But it's this idea that it's everything that makes up me. And that's individual. I'm this, I have a self, and psychology calls it the it or the ego, and you've got, it's me. There's only one me. There's only one you. And Jesus wants you to take he doesn't want you to erase your individuality. I don't want to say that at all. The reality is that he wants you to deny all of the things that are not who makes up who he wants you to be so that he can live his life through you and you can be the person that he wants you to be. It makes no sense whatsoever what I just said. So let me say it another way. We're supposed to be like Jesus, yes? Yes? The guy that wrote this book also wrote it a couple of epistles. And in one of them, he says, in 1 John, he says, if you say you believe in Jesus, you have to walk as Jesus walked. Which is terrifying. Terrifying. Because look at what Jesus does. He walks in absolute dependence upon the Father. He says crazy things like, I only say what the Father says. Imagine if you only said what God wanted you to say. I only, I only say what Jesus wants me to say. I only go where he wants me to go. I only act like he wants me to act. I don't know that I've ever had a day like that in my entire life. Uh, but that is the model that we're given. Absolute surrender of self to God. That is what Jesus did. Jesus surrendered everything that he is up to the point of physical death so that the Father would be glorified. And he says, he whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, well, my servant also will be. So if you ask the question, well, where is Jesus today? Where would Jesus be today? Well, people say, well, he'd be in all the... Well, where was he in the Bible? Well, he, was, he hung out with some riffraff. He did that a lot. And that's okay. He didn't become the riffraff. He drew the riffraff to himself. I, I'm actually a fan of the church hanging out with more riffraff. So find some riffraff, pray up, go together, and bring them to Jesus. That's Okay. Uh, I, I love the church going out into all the dark cracks and crevices of our world. That's where we're supposed to be. Because that's where Jesus went. Because where he is, his servant will be also. See, you see this incredible upside-down economy of God here. He's in the economy where the servant will be first. The, the, the last will be first, and the first will be last in God's kingdom. Hating your life will lose it. We're supposed to, excuse me, loving your life will lose it and hating his life will keep it. Well, how much energy do we spend on a normal day investing in making sure that our life is okay? Oh, a lot. I mean, I wake up every morning and the first thing I do is something for me. Like, oh, I gotta drink some vitamins. I get some coffee. Gotta, that's my first thought in the morning as I wake up and I'm like, how is Brandon today? How can I make sure that I'm good? It's all over everything. I mean, it's over. I mean, Oprah says it. Everybody says it. Not to drag Oprah through the mud, but it's just, it's what the world tells us. Make sure you're okay. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus says, mm, no, hate your life. Hate it. In light of whether or not your life should be lived for you or lived for God's glory, hate it. I mean, the the rock stars in Jesus' economy, they lay down their lives for other people. 
That's what they do. The greatest servant who's ever lived is Jesus. And he died. He allowed himself to be killed and gave up his own life voluntarily to forgive the very people who were killing him. That's a servant. And that has been repeated throughout Christian history. Do you know how many... Grab Fox's Book of Martyrs and just read through all the people who have died serving Jesus and how many people have gone to glory because that person was willing to give up their life. It's amazing. And it should shock us clean out of all of our sanitized Christianity that we have here in the U.S. We must practice denying ourselves. I don't know what that looks like for you. Um, Friday, for me, it looked like the reality that I don't, I'm, I'm a slow-paced person. So, which means surprises freak me out. Um, I'm not like a really rigid, like I gotta have everything. I'm just, I'm just slow. I'm just a tortoise. I'm just, I, I move slow. And so, when you say, oh, we gotta go, 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 we gotta leave in 20 minutes, I freak out. So, and my entire life is leaving in 20 minutes. So, we have four kids, and we're always, I feel like I'm always rushing somewhere. I hate being late. I lived in Guatemala for 10 years where I was, never late, and, and, but yet never on time. And so it was just this, ah. Well, Jenny, my wife, she comes up on Friday and she goes, oh, we're supposed to go to breakfast with, you know, we got to be gone in 20 minutes. And I get all mad. What do you mean? You didn't tell me that. Go on, I'm going to get in the shower. So I go and get in the shower all grumpy. And I'm in the shower and the Lord's like, hate your life. Like, oh. Why do you always bring up the Bible in my mind, Lord, when I'm having a good pity party? <laughs> and it's the reality of him saying, listen, instead of being grumpy that she didn't do it your way, why don't you just serve and try to get the kids ready real fast? Take a fast shower, get done, and do it with some joy. Not that complicated. Like, oh, gosh. That's what it looks like. Say, you know what? I'm going to deny what I want, and I'm going to lay it over here, down here, whatever, so that I can take up what Jesus wants. That's all it is. Ephesians talks about walking in the light like that. Don't lie anymore. Put aside your old self. Don't lie. Tell the truth. If you're doing something or behaving in a way that's not as a child of light, say, Jesus, help me stop doing that and then help me do the thing you want me to do. It's truly not that complicated. The, the, the problem is us, that we're selfish and our egos are enormous. It's amazing how much pride can fit in one body. When your heart is troubled, seek God's glory and not relief from your trouble. It's really easy to say. Jesus' heart is greatly distressed. And what does he say? Father, glorify your name. You'll see it later in Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. Why does that matter? I thought that when I'm in trouble, I'm supposed to focus on myself, self-care, take care of myself. And I'm not saying, if you are burning out serving people, take care of yourself. That's generally not our problem, if we're real honest, right? It's sort of like um, self-esteem. I had someone tell me when I was in high school, they said, uh, self-esteem is not the problem, low self-esteem. Like, what do you mean? And you're like, uh, it's, our problem is that we esteem ourselves far too much. Well, that's generally true. Now, even if you're esteeming yourself and saying, I hate myself, I'm going to cut myself, it's because who's the most important person? You. 
Someone who is suicidal is absolutely, that is the absolute inwardly focused thing. It's desperately, desperately sad and terrible. But that is the ultimate selfish act. And it's, that's why it's so broken and so sad and so desperately awful. It is the opposite of what Jesus does. Jesus, in his anguish, cries out that his Father would be glorified. And he takes the focus entirely off of himself. You know how freeing that is? To say, Lord, I don't actually care what happens to me. I want you to be glorified. I want you to be glorified by how I talk to my wife today. I want you to be glorified with how I treat my children. I want you to be glorified with how I walk through my business today. I want you to be glorified with how I treat my boss today. I want you to be glorified in in how I file my taxes. I want you to be glorified in how I talk to my neighbors. Imagine the difference if when we are in deep, deep pain that our cry of our heart is, Father, be glorified changes our entire perspective. And do you see how the Lord responds when he says that? His voice booms from heaven. I have and I will. Isn't that wonderful? That God says, the Father calls to the Son and says, Son, I have glorified it. I have glorified my name and I will glorify it again. The very thing that Jesus wants, God is calling to him and saying, I've done it and I will do it again. At the end of 26, he says, my father will honor the one who serves me. Isn't that ridiculous? That's God's economy. God honors the servant. He honors the servant. We're gonna see as we get into uh, chapter 13 and 14 that Jesus will demonstrate this by washing his disciples' feet. But in God's economy, the servant is honored. Let's just think about the world economy. Not that way, right? The servant is not honored. Just watch anything. News, sports, game show, sitcom, cartoons, servant, not honored. Imagine if some guy was trying to run for office and says, I deeply want to serve everybody and give my life to serve people. We're like, what, is that? what does that even mean? People don't even have a context for that. They don't have a category for what it means to actually have another person give their life for them, which is why our whole society is broken because everybody's trying to serve themselves instead of serving one another. But God honors, the Father honors the one who serves me. If you will follow Jesus, if you will surrender your heart, your mind, your everything, your career, your status and culture, your marriage, your, your need for self-affirmation, if you will sacrifice your, your need to be right in an argument, if you will sacrifice your, your need to have everything neat and tidy and perfect, if you will sacrifice all the things you have constructed around your world to make yourself comfortable and feel safe, God will honor you. And if you don't, he doesn't. Because there's no sense in telling God, I'm going to do it my way, and then call down your blessing on me. It doesn't work that way. All right? It's like trying to run up a, a fire hose when it's on. Just go with the flow, all right? The Lord's flow works His way, not ours. And His way is the way of service and the way of self-denial. So the last thing Jesus answers them when they say, who is this Son of Man? He gives them this enigmatic and beautiful challenge. 
I mean, dark and light, you see it all throughout the book of John. And he says in verse 36, believe or put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. That is the point of the whole book of John is that we would see that Jesus is God, believe on his name, and be saved. If you have never believed on Jesus and been saved, you're in darkness. I don't, doesn't matter how you feel. doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what Jesus says. And he says that you're in darkness and you must put your faith in him. That means you rely on him to save you. It means you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I repent of my sin and I come to you. Save me from it. That, that's all it is. It's not super complicated. And then you walk in the light that he shows you. It's about aligning your heart and your mind with God's. That's the only reason I read the Bible. It's not so that I can know better stuff. Knowing stuff is fun. And I like knowing where things are, and that's wonderful. But it's because if I don't study the Bible, every morning I wake up misaligned. I'm bent. Every morning. I've yet to wake up in my entire Christian life a single morning and woke up and been like, yay, full of the Spirit today. No. I wake up in the flesh every morning. Every morning. And if I do not align my heart with God's, Things don't go well. And at some point in the day, sometimes it's at night, and the Lord's like, did you have fun today? Have fun just doing it your way. How was that? And um, it's not usually super hot. Just ask, ask my wife. She goes through a lot of days like that with me. Bring people to Jesus. Practice denying yourself. When your heart is troubled, seek God's glory and not relief from the trouble. And believe and walk in the light. It is the only way to life, and it's the only thing that Jesus has told us that we, we simply cannot do it any other way. I don't know, I don't know what your week is like. I really don't. I wish I knew. I know some of your weeks because I've talked to you. I don't know what burdens you're carrying. I don't. And sometimes you preach and people are like, oh, I thought you were preaching right to me and I, I'm, I'm just preaching. I don't. That's all the Spirit. So if he's convicting you to do something or to make a change or to do, we're going to pray and we're going to respond in worship. Would you please do whatever he's asking you to do? Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. I, I thank you that you say hard things. I thank you that we bring all of the mess that is us we're like the people building the Tower of Babel, thinking that we can build something so great. And the reality is that what we need is, is just you. And we need to surrender ourselves to you and to walk with you. That when we are in trouble, when our heart is in trouble, that we need to seek your glory and not relief from the trouble. Because you're with us and you suffer with us and you walk through trouble with us. Help us not to be afraid, Lord. Help us to truly trust you, to truly walk in the light, and to not stumble in the darkness that we so often create by ourselves. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for teaching us who you are. Now help us live by what you've taught us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's all